Hi everyone, my name's Stephen. I'm a third year mathematics student and today we'll be looking at Romans 8 verses 17 to 30. If you don't have a Bible, you're in luck because it's on your handout. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will, that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by his own choice, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first, first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already uh, have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. You'll find an outline uh, on the uh, newsletter opposite where that passage was printed. You might find that useful. Well, it was great to have a choose-your-own-adventure. Thanks for the suggestions that came forward. A uh, wide variety, as uh, Brock said before. The most popular, actually, was John 11.35. Thank you to those people who put that in. Those who don't know, John 11.35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. <laughs> I presume that meant they wanted a very short talk. <laughs> uh, but tied for second most popular was life after death, heaven. And so whoever you are who uh, put that in, we're coming with you on your adventure this afternoon. Thank you. Well, if you read any of the Bible, especially the New Testament, you've probably worked out that it sort of has this ringing hope of something better. Uh, hope in the New Testament is not wishful thinking. You know, I hope the Dockers finally win a game. It's <laughs> sure expectation. It's what you know will happen. I'm hoping for the exams. Well, after the exams, they will be over one day. Let me give you a couple of examples of the hope in the Bible. John, come up. Yep. Uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There it is. Why did Jesus come? Why did God send Jesus? So those who by default were perishing might have eternal life. 
or another passage uh, from 2 Timothy 1.10. Uh, the appearing of our, of, of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who's destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Brought life and immortality by destroying death. It pictures death as this sort of monster ogre that's there harassing you, trying to get his hands on you, gobble you up. But Jesus came and broke his arms and legs, put him in a cage. He can no longer menace you. All his power has been taken, bringing life and immortality to light. Now, to, to a world where the mortality rate is stubbornly stuck at 100%, that is a bolt from the blue. But what is this hope of eternal life? What sort of eternal life? What are we hoping for? Well, a few years ago, we did a survey at UWA amongst the students, and we asked them, what do you think happens to you after you die? We gave them these four options, plus uh, anything else you wanted to put there. Uh, you cease to exist... That is, your body just goes into the ground and rots. You're reincarnated as something else, part of this cycle of coming back as cockroach or a princess, whatever it is next. Or your soul goes on forever, immortality of the soul, or your body will be resurrected. Now, what do you think was most popular? See by a long way. For those who are more visual, there's a graph of it. A long, long way. That is... Although quite a few people did think your body just rots, I guess the rise of atheism has led to that sort of belief. Most people think that your soul just goes on forever. And I suspect that's what most people think Christianity is about. And that's what Christians believe. And in fact, quite a few of those 55% who went for that were, I think, Christians. But it's actually not what the Bible teaches. It's not what God says to us. This sort of belief comes out in the popular idea, you go to heaven when you die. A picture of spirits floating around on clouds somewhere, maybe playing harps. I wonder why it's so popular. My guess is it's because it requires God to do nothing. God just sits back and watches. He's a spectator. Our souls are inherently immortal. When you die, they get released from your body and they just go on like they always were going to go on. And in the world that the New Testament was written in, A and C were also probably the most popular. One of the things that was on tombstones that we've dug up from that, that era was this sort of little ditty. I wasn't, I was, I'm not, and I don't care. You could imagine someone at UWA saying that today, couldn't you? Or Socrates, there's a bust of him up at uh, Winthrop Hall, behind me somewhere that way. He said, a human is a little soul carrying around a corpse. You get the picture? My body's just a corpse. It's going to die right in the ground. What I really am is the soul within me. And so immortality of the soul, that was the most popular belief in the world that, that Jesus came into. But it's not what the Bible teaches. And you see what the Bible teaches in many passages, but you see it here in Romans chapter 8 in verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. That's what we're waiting for, the redemption of our bodies. My body is on this sort of downward spiral, at least mine is. Anybody here over 18? Your body is too. 18 is the peak, okay? From now on, it's on this downward spiral, heading, heading towards disintegration and everything else that comes with it. To rot in the grave unless Christ returns first. But God is going to do something about rotting bodies. 
It's the redemption of our bodies, not the immortality of the soul that we're looking forward to. Bodies restored from the dust and the ashes. Jesus actually describes it as people coming out of their graves. That's vivid language, isn't it? Uh, We think of that as very ghoulish, but that's what Jesus uh, promises is going to happen one day. To real, physical, embodied, flesh and bone life. It's resurrection to immortal life. And it's not just us who will be resurrected. This passage also talks about the renewed creation. This world, Jesus calls it the renewal, the regeneration of all things. God isn't just going to discard this creation, throw it away and start again, but renovate this one. Notice how physical this all is. God's destiny for us is real physical bodies in a real physical universe. Now think about yourself for a minute. I know that's hard to do, but just think about yourself. Because you're, you are an embodied being, aren't you? And so much of who you are and what you are is expressed by your body. You can't talk without moving your body, can you? We, we talk about body language because that communicates almost as much as our words. That's the sort of beings we're created to be. Our relationships are physical. They sort of almost don't exist without physicality. I know you can send text messages, but it's only when you actually see someone, you shake hands with them and you give them a hug, and that's when relationships really take off. We recognise each other physically. It's hard to imagine disembodied existence actually being worthwhile. And the Bible sees it as a very diminished life. A student at UWA called Jaden Bosvelt, some of you will know him, uh, was involved in a wakeboarding accident uh, about two and a half years ago. I remember visiting him in hospital. His neck had been broken. He was facing the prospect of being a quadriplegic in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. In hospital, about a month after the injury, I remember just being thrilled to see his quiet confidence in God in the midst of such a situation. But I couldn't help groaning for him, trying to imagine what it would be like to be stuck in a wheelchair for the next 50 years. And it struck me, if all God offers Jaden is escape from his body, 50 years imprisoned in a wheelchair with useless arms and legs, and his only hope is to leave his body behind one day, that's no hope, is it? That's not real hope. Now, God gives us hope of resurrected bodies, renewed bodies, capable of lifting and running and and hugging and and wakeboarding and fist-pumping, real, substantial hope. But is that hope just wishful thinking? No, because God has started it already. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul says that Christ... Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits of those who die. That is Jesus' resurrection, that real historical event about 2,000 years ago. He died, and it wasn't that he died and his body stayed in the tomb and his soul, his soul floated free. No, his body came back alive, vibrantly alive. His disciples touched him. He ate food with them. Death could not hold him. And Paul says that's the pattern and guarantee of our resurrection. He conquered death for himself, but for us as well. Or Philippians chapter 3. We eagerly await a saviour from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorified body. Whether your body's just old and decaying or actually decayed, he will transform it to be like his glorious body. 
you're ageing and spreading and sagging and disease-infected, well, your body will be transformed one day. That is the Christian hope. Resurrected bodies in a new creation forever. And the way Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 5, he talks about it as Christians having this eager expectation. We're on tiptoe, anticipating, waiting, looking forward to, groaning at our present suffering and the frustrations of life, but hoping, looking forward to, day after day, minute after minute, for the resurrection of our bodies and the new creation. But actually... If you look at Christians in Perth, including most of us sitting here, I suspect, that's not an obvious picture of us, is it? Standing on tiptoe, waiting, hoping for resurrection. I'm not the first to observe that, especially in Western affluent countries like ours, Christians don't appear to be people pumped with the hope of resurrection. We seem obsessed with this life and this world. We hardly ever give a thought to life after death. And resurrection. I think for us there's a desperate need for us to get our head around what God actually reveals about resurrection, about life after death. So why aren't we filled with hope for it? Well, I think it's partly that. You could get it here and now, couldn't you? We live in Perth, one of the most livable cities in the world. And it's nice, isn't it? And it feels like our dreams could actually become true. Life is generally pretty good for most of us. And the good life, the really good life, is almost within reach. You know, if he or she would just give me the love I'd like. If, if the coffee on campus got just a fraction better. It, when I get that job and I can afford the car and the clothes and the apartment and the travel, well, uh, this will be heaven on earth, won't it? But notice what this passage says. God has frustrated this creation. He's subjected it to decay. That is, God is constantly at work to frustrate your dreams. Do you realise that? They will never come true. They'll always disappoint. I'm sure you've had the experience of that. You know that holiday you dreamed about? It was going to be the holiday to kill all holidays. And it might have been good, but it was never that good, was it? It was always a bit disappointing. It was always less than you hoped and expected it to be. God frustrates our dreams. Secondly, exactly what this life in the age to come will be like is pretty hard to imagine. And if you can't imagine it, it's very hard to long for it, isn't it? But how do you imagine something that's beyond our experience? How do you describe even something that's beyond our experience? Well, you can only use... Things you have experienced to try and describe it and that's what the Bible actually does. It uses language and pictures of this life, of this world to help us imagine what it's going to be. (laughs) Some of the pictures are bizarre, aren't they? If you read Revelation chapter 21, you'll find that the New Jerusalem, which is a picture of that age, is this giant cube. 2,000 kilometres this way, 2,000 kilometres that way, 2,000 kilometres that way. And you think, man, I can't imagine that. A cube that big. That's here to Adelaide, cubed. Can you imagine something that big? I can't. But at least I can try and imagine it. It is describable. But in some sense, trying to describe what resurrection life will be like is like trying to explain colour to someone who's only experienced black and white. Can you imagine that? Imagine someone who's only ever experienced black and white. And you say, well, it's really bright red like those clouds you see at sunset. You say, no, they're grey. It's blue like the water. Now it's grey. 
How do you explain colour to someone who's never seen it, never experienced it? Well, that's sort of the problem we have trying to imagine the age to come. One way the Bible does it is negatively. There will be no more frustration or decay. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And if you know the pain of illness or bereavement, of betrayal or loneliness, that's a wonderful prospect. All of that eradicated forever, never to poke its head up again. But it's also hard to imagine what we'll do for eternity. If your picture of the age to come is immortality of the soul, floating around on clouds playing harps, then you can't escape the pretty strong boring, can you? That just, and it goes on forever. That will just become even more and more boring, won't it? But there are two significant aspects of resurrection life that the Bible opens up for us that help us to see that it won't be like that. The first is, we'll be like Jesus. See verse 29. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. There's two elements to that. We'll be like Jesus. And part of that is not just physical, resurrected like him, but sinless, righteous like him. Now, righteousness has the tag of boring and dull, though, doesn't it? You think, oh, somebody, to actually have life, somebody has to have a bit of mischief in them, a bit of, a bit of evil. That, that's what makes people come alive. But Jesus was a stunning exception, wasn't he? I don't know what you make of the stories as you read them in the New Testament about Jesus. But he's somebody who's not tainted with evil. He's not even self-conscious. He's, he's never self-protective. But he's very attractive. He's the sort of guy I'd love to hang out with. He's interesting. He, he cares about other people around him. Can you imagine being like that? Really? Really good. Actually good. So good that you're no longer even afraid that your selfishness might stick its head up again and grab you and cause you to do something that you'll regret. You won't even have to think about stopping that happening. That would be fantastic. But it's not just like Jesus, though. It's with Jesus. Notice here, he'll be the firstborn in a whole family. We'll be part of his family. What will eternal life be like? Well, it's fundamentally about relationship in which Jesus is the centre. With each other, yes, but especially with Jesus. And that's what makes life, isn't it? It's relationships, it's friendships. You know, those fantastic experiences you've had? Sure, what you did might have been good, but it was always the people you did it with that make it worthwhile, isn't it? It's what you've shared with them. It's that connection that you have. And that's what we'll have with Jesus. The age to come, Jesus will be central. It'll be his world. He'll be the Lord and ruler. He'll be the saviour, honoured by all. And we'll have the privilege of being his siblings. We'll get to hang out with him day after day, year after year. That will never get boring. Secondly, the Bible uses the idea of glory. Now, glory is a word that sort of has lost currency unless you play soccer, I think. Um, there's an old sort of description of Christians of people who go to glory, which sounds like being lost in space. But in the Bible, the word glory is sort of this catch-all to describe the experience of resurrection and the age to come. And let me just sketch in a couple of, of uh, parts of that. So in verse 17, he says, If we're children, that is, children of God, then we're heirs. We're really part of the family. 
written into the will, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings now, in order that we may also share in his glory then. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. See how he uses glory to describe the life in the age to come? And part of that is inheritance. We're co-heirs with Jesus. Well, what does Jesus inherit? Well, it depends what his father owns, doesn't it? What does his father own? Well, a fair bit, actually. Like the whole universe and beyond, doesn't he? It all goes to Jesus. He's the heir of the father. The father shares everything with his son. And what does Jesus do with it? Does he say, great, mine to keep forever? No. He looks at you and me and says, come and share it with me. We're co-heirs with Jesus of everything. And what does that mean? Well, it means lots of things. One thing it means, though, I think, is meaningful work. Remember the Garden of Eden? God created this universe, this world, and he put the first humans in it, and he told them to rule it. He, he told them to act as if they owned it under God, as if they inherited it. They were to subdue it, change it, push it into shape, benefit from it, enjoy it, do labour that was really worth doing so that on the seventh day they could sit back like God and say, that was a good week's work. I've achieved something worthwhile. It will mean meaningful work, not sitting around being bored silly, but ruling. Secondly, glory means honour. Now, that's actually the most common use of the word in the Bible. Glory is a relational thing. I love going to 21st. And there's a moment in every 21st that is unmissable. It's, it's, the, it's the moment when the dad of the 21st person, or the mum, or both together, get up to give their speech, and they say, I'm so proud of my daughter, or my son. And they list some of the things they've done. And, and that's the moment, because that's the moment they give glory to their, their child. And when it's real glory, when it's, when it's actually earned, when it's true and right... What do we do? We all feel fabulous, don't we? We all join in the joy of that honour being given. There is no better moment in life when that happens. And that's what Paul envisages the age to come will be like. Here's a picture of it in 1 Thessalonians. He says, What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we'll glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you, you Thessalonians? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Now, we spend a whole half hour exploring this, or even further if you want to, but just, just get a bit of a handle on what's going on here. Paul's picturing the last day. And he pictures getting there, and on the last day, the Thessalonian Christians are going to be there. He'll spy them across the way. And as soon as he spies them, joy will just flood his heart. And you can imagine the country, because Paul had laboured and suffered to share the gospel with the Thessalonians. He'd seen them respond to that gospel and through difficulties and struggles and persecutions, stayed faithful to Jesus. He'd prayed for them. He'd laboured over them. And to get there on that day and see them there with Jesus saved, well, you can't beat that for joy, can you, if you actually love other people. But it goes further than that. He imagines them not just as his joy, but as his glory, his crown. That is... He'll have that sense of a, a deep, enormous satisfaction to know that what he's done, what he laboured for, what he prayed for, has actually come to fruition. You know, like when you build something that you really care about and you look at it and say, that was worth doing. Well, it'll be that magnified a thousand times because it won't be just worth doing because it'll sit on the shelf for ten years. It'll be worth doing because the product will last for eternity. And Jesus will be there. 
And everyone will turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, they're here because of you. You saved them. You died for them. And Jesus will put his arm around poor shoulder and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you contributed to this as well. And I'll tell you what, whether I'm one of the Thessalonians or just somebody looking on and watching that, my heart will sing. What joy there is in glory. Glory of others. Glory given and received. You see, Paul actually sees there's some continuity between what happens in this life, in this world, what we do in this world and the age to come. Resurrection brings a continuity of relationship and that's where everything will become clear. Everything that's been done, all the the motives and labours, all the product uh, of our labours will become apparent to everybody. Jesus will make it apparent. And so part of what makes the age to come so good is what happens in this age. We need to get our head around it so we can imagine it and start to see just how good it is. It's it's only a snippet. It's only a, a little bit of a foretaste. But life after death is our hope. And I hope you've started to get a little bit of a picture of it, just a a foretaste. But as well as getting our head around it, we need to get our hearts into it. Because our culture has no hope except this life. And our culture is what we live and breathe day by day. It's what we absorb from our television and our conversations. It's what we see in our Facebook feeds day after day after day. Let me just pick on two things that are part of our culture that hope turns upside down. YOLO. Heard of YOLO? You only live once. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because that means you've got to grab it now, don't you? Well, what's your dream? Is it travel or sex or a startup company or some other sort of experience? Well, you've got to do it, don't you? Grab it while you can. YOLO. You only live once. Your bucket list. Get it out. Start writing out the hundred places you must see before you die. The hundred things you must do before you die. YOLO? What rubbish. You know, it's not that you only live once, you live twice. And this is just such a brief snippet of time compared to eternity. Let's go for, as somebody made up recently, yacht. You actually live twice. So you haven't really lost anything if you never see New York City, if you never get to live in Cottesloe, if you never have sex in your life. It's enormously liberating, isn't it? Or FOMO. Fear of missing out. That constantly checking your Facebook feed because an event might come up, an invitation might come that's better than what I've got already. So I never decide. I won't decide about NYC because something better might come up. Well, it actually won't. So don't worry about that. (laughs) But what a fear-filled, feeble way to live your life. Now, the hope of life after death demolishes YOLO and FOMA. Here's a way of saying it. Here's a prayer in the New Testament. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where do you see evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit? Real power at work by the Spirit? Overflowing with hope. If that doesn't make sense, come to NYC. If it does, still come. In the past... Christians were often accused of being about pie in the sky in the by and by. And we're urged to to, to just get real and be on about steak on the plate in the here and now. Now, that charge would hardly stick today, would it? But actually, the accusation is misguided. Christianity is about pie in the sky when you die. 
It is about life after death. It's not only about that, but it is about that. I don't mean floating around on clouds. I mean the hope of resurrection, of a renewed creation in the age to come. And we shouldn't be apologetic about it. And when life is tough, we really need it. Verse 18, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. See what he's saying? You suffer a bit now, it won't compare to the glory that will be revealed. You suffer really badly now. And I presume you've seen some of the videos of ISIS executions, of Christians uh, having their throats cut, of others being taken off and raped and sold into sexual slavery. I think, what could ever compensate for that? What could ever outstrip that sort of suffering? And Paul says, the glory to come will outstrip even that suffering. Outstrip it so far, you'll never even remember it. How much more our suffering? We've got a few minutes left. So, are there questions, comments? We've only touched on the subject briefly. Uh, Yeah, what do you want to say? What do you want to ask? So the question is, the new heaven and the new earth, uh, is it about going to heaven or staying on earth? Is that the question? Yeah, once we've been saved, righteous. Yeah. So uh, um, Revelation 21 is where that picture is given us of a new heaven and a new earth. And the picture is actually of heaven coming to earth. So the new heavens, the renewed heavens, come to the renewed earth. And I, I take away that heaven... In the Bible, the word heaven is used in a number of different ways. I think in that situation, it's talking about the reality, the non-physical reality in which God and the the spirits, angels, live. That world is is heaven. And heaven will come to us, come to earth. That is, we will experience the presence of God in an immediate way. Because he and everything that he is comes here to the renewed earth. I think that's what it's describing. If we're resurrected when Jesus returns, which hasn't happened yet, what happens if we, to us, I presume, between dying and Jesus returning? Um, thank you. That's the sort of that's the elephant in the room, isn't it? Um, so thank you for raising it. Um, uh, there's two different ways Christians have understood that. One is that your soul goes to, in some sense, to heaven to be with Jesus while it waits for resurrection. The other is the idea of soul sleep. That is. You're not conscious at all. The next thing you're conscious of is resurrection. Um, Personally, I think the Bible teaches the first. Um, Passages like Philippians 1, where Paul says um, he'd prefer to depart and be with the Lord. Uh, That's far better than physical life. And especially Revelation uh, 6, where John sees the souls of the martyrs in heaven crying out to, to God, How long, O Lord? before you bring the the final, the the wrap-up of history. So I I think uh, that's the picture. But even then, that is not the hope of Christians. So if you want to look this up, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Thessalonians are actually worried about what happens to those who've died before Jesus comes back. 
that they don't know what. And Paul's answer is not, well, they're in heaven with Jesus, all okay. His answer is, Jesus will return one day and we know that he died and rose again, therefore they will be raised on that day. So our hope, although it's, it's true, I think, that our souls, if you like, will go to be with Jesus in the meantime, our hope is resurrection. That is what we're looking forward to. That's what Paul looks forward to and encourages us to look forward to.